Would you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1? Uh, Paul is writing this, this letter to, uh, to Timothy. Uh, Timothy is his apostolic delegate who has been sent to the church in Ephesus. And as you remember from last week, hopefully, uh, Paul uh, likely founded the church in Ephesus sometime during his third missionary journey. We know that, that he spent uh, the longest amount of time there, the, the place that he had his most continuous uh, period of ministry in one place uh, certainly was in Ephesus as he spent three years there. And at the end of that journey, we looked at this last week, he was on his way back to Jerusalem to get there in time for the Feast of Weeks, and he stopped at a place called Miletus, which is about 40 miles from Ephesus, and he called, he sent for the leaders of the church, the elders, to come and visit him because he had something on his heart that he wanted to share with them, and they did, they came. And you can read about it in Acts 20, but um, I just want to put the, the scripture up there that this is the, the, really the meat of his message to them in Acts 20, verses 29 to 30. He told this to the Ephesian elders, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Now, it's been about five years later, and Paul is writing this letter to Timothy because his prophecy has come true. There are leaders in the church who are teaching perverse things, false doctrine, and Paul is issuing this charge to Timothy. In fact, he issues this charge in verse 3. Just look at it of chapter 1. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some or command some that they teach no other doctrine. These teachers, they were not teaching sound or biblical doctrine. They were, they were into things that were outside of Scripture, into myths and, uh, and fables and tales and uh, endless genealogies, and they infused elements of the law into this ascetic works-based system of self-righteousness, and they were neglecting the true message of the gospel. You might wonder how could they have departed from the pure apostolic doctrine of Paul in just such a short a time? And the answer really is seen in verse 5. Look at it. It says, now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. Simply put, these men had failed to maintain purity of heart and a good conscience. Our hearts are made pure by the blood of Jesus, but we maintain a pure heart through the power of the Holy Spirit, don't we? We resist the devil and the world and the flesh. But when we fail in these things, and we begin to sort of listen to false ideologies and the things of the world that seeps into our lives, and our consciences are no longer clean. And so we no longer have a sincere faith. We have a, end up with a hypocritical faith, and that's where these leaders had ended up. And the purpose of Paul's command to Timothy was that, that he might issue this command, that he might maintain the purity of the church. They would have a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, a real faith. Why is all of this is important? I wanted to touch on this a little bit more. I touched on it last week, but 
elaborate on it today. What's, what really is the purpose of this letter? You find that in chapter 3, if you'll turn there really quickly, verses 14 to 15. We've looked at this, but this is really the purpose statement of the whole letter. Chapter 3, verse 14 says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Paul is concerned with our conduct. He's concerned with how the church uh, conducts themselves, how we act. <clears throat> but he's also concerned about what else? Doctrine. So he's concerned about conduct. He's concerned about doctrine. What's the connection between these two things? I don't want us to miss this. Let me just take you through a few verses really briefly. In chapter 1, verse 15, I know we're not there yet, but we'll get to it. But look what he says. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am chief. Then in chapter 2, verses 3 to 4, he says this, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then in chapter 4, look at verse 9. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. And then at the end of that chapter, chapter 4, verse 16, he says, Take heed to yourself, that's your conduct, and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. I hope you see the connection in all those things. What is he concerned about? The gospel. Jesus Christ has come to save sinners. He says it over and over and over again. And he ends with, and listen, if you take heed to your conduct and your doctrine, then not only do you save yourself, but you save all those who hear you. Paul's letter to Timothy is not simply about conduct. I don't want us to get lost here. It's not simply about church order, although those, those things are covered here. Our doctrine and our conduct have everything to do with evangelism. The watching world looks at the church and evaluates. It looks at our conduct. It looks at our doctrine. And many today are picking one or the other, but the truth is you must have both. If you were at uh, Truth for Youth this year, you might remember we had Tony Brown, and he was talking about really uh, progressive Christianity which is the idea that we must progress to a higher form of Christianity, that this is sort of old and uh, we need to, to progress to a, a newer, higher form because, after all, things have changed. And I want to give you some of the common beliefs of progressive Christianity. One is feelings are more important than truth. That it's really more important to understand people's feelings. How do you feel in a church rather than what is the truth being taught in a church. Another thing is that there's no such thing as absolute truth. It could be your truth or my truth, or um, we all can have our own truth about whatever truth we come up with from Scripture. Another one is that questions are more important than answers. It's good just to have questions. Everyone should ask questions, but answers aren't as important. Another one is this. It's about deeds, not creeds. It's orthopraxy, that's more important than orthodoxy, orthopraxy, the practice of, of Christianity. But the truth is, our doctrine informs our conduct. It's 
orthodoxy that informs our orthopraxy. That is the truth. And you can't have one without the other. And our conduct does demonstrate to people that the church really is, as we read in chapter 3, the pillar and ground of the truth. And what the world desperately needs is the truth. But the teaching that's taking place in Ephesus was actually hindering the gospel. In fact, it was no gospel at all. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul writes this. We'll look further into into what was happening in Galatia, but right now, I want you to see verse 6. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. That was happening in Galatia, and it blew his mind. He said, I'm just marveled that you would turn so quickly from the grace of Christ to another gospel. Well, in fact, there is no other gospel, he says. There's no such thing. There's only one gospel. And so, like the false teachers of Galatia, these teachers here in Ephesus were using, of all things, the law to pervert the gospel. The law. So, what, what, what's the big thing about the law? What does that say about the law? Is the law... Uh, bad then. Well, Paul doesn't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And so what he does here is he digresses for a moment to talk to us about the proper or lawful use of the law, which is the title of today's message, the lawful use of the law. So let's look at it. We're going to look at verses three, uh, sorry, 8 to 11 of chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Verse 8, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Let me pray. God, thank you for your word to us today. And Lord, we do pray that you would just give us ears to hear as we go through a little bit of a tough passage that speaks about the law and the importance of the law. And so, Lord, we just pray that you help us to see these things by the power of your Holy Spirit and that we might be able to apply these truths to our lives for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're just going to look at some aspects of the law here. And I think that's all really important. And a really simple outline here, beginning in verse 8, it says, we know that the law is good, which is point one. (laughs) The law is good. All right? Just because these teachers were using the law in their gospel uh, teaching, well, it wasn't the gospel, in their teaching, it doesn't mean that the law is bad, that, that, that the law has no purpose. And first of all, what are we talking about when we say the law? Well, first and foremost, it's the Ten Commandments of of Moses, but I think that can extend beyond that to all of the Mosaic law that's found in the books of Moses. You find the dietary restrictions and the regulations on the Sabbath. You find all these different things uh, there. But primarily here, he's talking about the Ten Commandments. And Paul defends the law in the book of Romans so well that I'm not going to try to recreate it. I'm going to take us there. So keep your finger in 1 Timothy, but I want to take us to Romans chapter 7. So if you make a left-hand turn to Romans from 1 Timothy, go to chapter 7. <clears throat> if you've never read the book of Romans, 
I uh, highly encourage you to do so. Uh, it is a uh, incredible defense of doctrine and doctrinal truths, and so it's so important to have an understanding of the book of Romans. But here in Romans chapter 7, I want to begin in verse 12, which is the end of uh, sort of his argument, his conclusion here, and just read to you verse 12, says this, therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. There he tells us, okay, the law, it's good, it's holy, it's just, there's nothing wrong with the law. But why is it good? Why can we say that the law is good? Well, we're going to back up in chapter 7 and pull this apart, but the first reason is this. It exposes sinful actions. The reason law can be considered a good thing is that it exposes sinful actions. This is wonderfully told in verse 7. Look back in verse 7 of chapter 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Now, what is Paul referring to here when he says, you shall not covet and covetousness? Well, obviously, hopefully you know, he's gone back to the Ten Commandments, okay? This is the actual, the tenth of the Ten Commandments, and uh, it's Exodus 20, verse 17. Put it up on the screen here so you can see the whole, the whole law there. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. That is the 10th commandment. And Paul says this about the 10th commandment, commandment, I would not have known covetousness unless the law had told me, you shall not covet. So when I covet something, it's covetousness. It is covetousness even if no one told me that it's covetousness. Uh, It doesn't matter if I don't know it's covetousness. It simply is. I just don't know it yet. But when God comes in with his law and he says, hey, it is wrong to covet. Thou shalt not covet. And then I go ahead and covet anyway. It is now seen to be wrong. Do you get the difference? It is wrong. I just don't know it. But when God comes in with his law and I covet, then it's seen as wrong. I didn't know it to be wrong before, but now I do. Now, let me make a point that's clear. Sin was in the world before the law. Sin did not come in the world with the law. Paul's not even trying to say that. In fact, in Romans 5, 13, he says this, for until the law, sin was in the world. And sin is not imputed when there is no law. Meaning this, People sinned before the coming of the law. That would be the period of uh, the time of Adam all the way to Moses. People sinned, yeah? There was no perfect people, Adam to Moses. There was sin um, in that time. And we certainly know uh, Noah's flood (laughs) tells us that, right? But there was a lot of sin in that period of time. But a specific list of violations against the law could not be made against those sinners because what? There was no law. Does that make sense? So sin cannot be imputed to them. No one could say, hey, you broke the 10th commandment. Because people, I don't even know what the 10th commandment is because the law had not come. Does that make sense? So the sin was in the world. Make no mistake, he's not saying the law brought in sin. They just didn't know what the specific sin was and you could not um, uh, list their violations against them. But we're told in the Bible that all men and women are without excuse. Regardless of whether you know it's a sin, 
or not. The law is written on our hearts. But the law is good because when you are uh, confronted with the law, it exposes sinful actions as sinful actions. Making sense so far? I don't want to lose you. You don't know if you are uh, selfish, but you didn't know you were selfish until God's word showed you were selfish. You were still selfish, but now you know it's wrong to be selfish. Similar thing. So it's good because it does expose sinful hearts. It's also good because it arouses rebellious hearts. Sorry, sinful actions. It arouses rebellious hearts. And he goes on with this in chapter 7, but look at verse uh, 8 of Romans 7. But sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Now, the word opportunity there, it refers to a base of operations, okay? Sin, it uses the law as a military base of operations from which to launch its attack against God. That's what sin does. The commandment, he says, which is the law, it comes, it exposes sin, and as a result, that once dormant sin awakens to full-fledged rebellion. We come out actually in rebellion to sin. When God's law comes, it demands our worship. It demands our allegiance. It demands our perfect obedience. And the human heart has stirred up to active rebellion, and the true colors of the heart are seen. All you have to do is look around our world today. Same-sex marriages, LGBTQ+, lifestyles, all of those things could be considered normal if the law had not come. If God's standard on relationships were not so clearly seen throughout all of human history since the law, that's been clearly proclaimed. But because it is clearly, clearly seen, that a full-fledged rebellion against those things is what the heart does. And is that not what we see today? Uh, it, the, the, those groups don't just want people to tolerate their, their lifestyles, but they want them to affirm it and declare that it is right when God's word says it is not. Does that make sense? But that's the response of the rebellious heart. That's what the rebellious heart does. In fact, look at Romans chapter 1. We have time for this, I think. Look at Romans chapter 1 real briefly. I know we're in 7, but he, he talks more about this in verse um, 28. Chapter 1, verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, he's talking about unrighteous people, okay? God gave them over to a debased mind to do the things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, and he starts to list it all, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, there's that, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. We're seeing Romans 1 lived out. You must approve what I practice because they know the righteous judgment of God here. So it's not just the fact that we can commit 
sinful actions, when confronted with those actions as sinful or even forbidden, then those things become more attractive because that's the rebelliousness in our heart. And the sin which was once passive is now aggressive and hostile because pride in the heart is awakened. And an opportunity to assert our self-will has been given to us by the law. That's what Paul is talking about there. So it gives us a place to, to launch our attack against God. God has said it is forbidden, therefore I attack him and his commands. The reality is that sin is a sleeping monster. Sin was always there. But imagine yourself chained to this monster. And in comes the law. And the law says, you're chained to sin. You need to kill that thing. Well, sin wakens and says, no. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to beat this guy. Um, and, and that's what Paul says. He says, sin revived and I died. Because in the battle between you and sin, sin wins. You lose. You're enslaved to sin. You've been chained to it. And now it's been awakened by the law. And you're spiritually dead because you understand you're under the righteous judgment of God. That's what he's saying. The law has a purpose. It exposes sinful actions. It also arouses the rebellion that's already in the heart to begin with. And the third thing is that it brings death to the sinner. Look at verse 10, going back to Romans 7, if you will. Go back to Romans 7. Look at verse 10. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. So the law, he says, doesn't bring life. It doesn't do that. It brings death. It brings judgment. It brings condemnation. The law condemns us. Well, how so? Well, it's, it's the perfect reflection of God's holy character. We just sang about God's holiness. It reveals to us our utter inability to live up to that standard. That's why I always tell people why I know the Bible is true, because the standard is perfection. Man-made religions do not set the bar at some, some high place that you can't reach. They set at easy levels. Oh, all you got to do is uh, tithe 10% and you're in the kingdom. All you got to do is this, all you got to do is that. But the Bible says, no, you got to be perfect. What man would set the bar at an unreachable place? No man. But God does because that's the perfect revelation of his character. He desires holiness. And the law is perfect. And Psalm 19.7 says that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. None of us could perfectly obey the perfect law of the Lord. It's, it's perfect. And the law reveals to you and to me that we are not. And so what it does, it condemns us to death. That's why Paul says, it killed me. I'm spiritually doomed. I'm spiritually dead. But because it reveals that to me, the law is seen as good. Because you might be thinking, that, well, how is any of this good? No, no, no. It reveals my desperate situation. It reveals I'm chained to a sinful monster that wants me dead. It reveals those things to me, and therefore the law is good. And that's why he says in verse 12, it is good, it's holy, it's just. The law is not sin. The law is not evil. The law is good, and it's holy because it exposes our hearts, exposes our sinful actions. It condemns us to death. Now go back to 1 Timothy. Hopefully that clears that up a little bit, but go back first to me. Look at verse 8 again. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. If one uses it lawfully. So we know it's good. We know why it's good. But we also see this, that the law must be used lawfully. That's point two. How do we use the law lawfully? Doesn't that statement imply that there is a way to use the law that is unlawful? <laughs> you're right, Kevin, you're using a whole lot of laws there. 
Yes, it does imply that. There is an inappropriate, legalistic use of the law. And that creeps into churches, and that's what was happening in Ephesus. The law was coming back into the church to be used for the righteous. But we're told here that the law is not for the righteous. Look what it says in in verse 9. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person. The law is not for a righteous person. No one can earn divine approval. No one can earn merit, uh, as some would say, or earn salvation, or even please God through the law. That is a role that the law was not meant for and it could never fulfill. In fact, Romans chapter 3 tells us this in verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Again, he confirms that. That's what you get from it. You get knowledge of sin. And then in verse 28, he says, therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. The law doesn't justify us. It shows us how far from God we really are. That's what it does. And Paul was battling this kind of false gospel here. And with the Galatian churches, I showed you a little bit earlier, but I want to take you back to Galatians, if you will, make a left-hand turn again. You don't have to go as far as you did for Romans, just a, um, a little bit before that, Galatians, uh, chapter 3, if you would. Galatians chapter 3. This is really great what he, he writes here. It's very helpful. But in Galatians chapter 3, the first three verses here of chapter 3, he says this, O foolish Galatians. <laughs> that's, a, that's a start to a chapter. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. Verse 2, this only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? What he's saying is, like, did salvation come to you? Did justification come to you by works of the law or by faith? The Spirit comes in and does the work by faith. Well, the answer would be, well, the Spirit. But they were thinking, but now I bring the law back in and I use the law to perfect me, to sanctify me. He says, no, no, no. You don't begin in the Spirit and end in the law. You begin in the Spirit and you finish with the Spirit. The Spirit does all the work. They believe they still needed the law, that it was a necessary part of their justification and sanctification. They, all they had to do was adhere to the law. But righteousness does not come by the law. It comes by faith. And I want to kind of go backwards through his argument here in Galatians. If you look at verse 21 of chapter 2, so just it's right up from what we just read. Verse 21 of chapter 2. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Wow, what a statement. If righteousness comes to us through the law, then, then why did Jesus have to die? Even if, even if you need that part, but you, you still need a little bit of a law. Well, why did Jesus have to die? Because he says he had to die in vain. Because what place has grace? Where does grace fit in with all of that? Grace no longer saves me. But as the song famously says, grace does save us and grace will lead me home. It's grace that begins salvation. We're saved by grace, but it also carries us to the very culmination of salvation. Grace completes us. That's why Paul wrote to the Colossians in Colossians 2.10, 
uh, you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. You're not lacking something, in other words, that the law can provide. Don't go back to the law. It's now Christ who lives in us, which is his next point, kind of going backwards through his argument. Look at verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I know it's a very a famous verse. You should know this one by heart, I would hope. But because I've been crucified with Christ, I actually no longer live. It's Christ living in me. But the life I do live, I live by works. No, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We live this life, this new life in Christ. The old has died, the new has come, but we continue to live this new life through the power of Christ in us. And that is by faith, not by works because I've died to the law. His next point, verse 19, for I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. You and I have died to the law. The law has no power over us. We actually now live to God. And so verse 16, go back all the way to verse 16 of chapter 2, he says this, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. You think you get the point there? <laughs> he says it three times in there that you've got to get this. You're not justified by the law. If we try to go back to the law, we fall into legalism and works righteousness. You don't earn favor with God. So that would bring up the question, then what is really the purpose of the law for us? What is that? Um, what is it all about? Well, Paul asked the same question in chapter 3 of Galatians. Look at verse 19. What purpose then does, does the law serve? He knew the question. He asked it himself. What, what is the purpose of the law? Well, he says, it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. I don't have time to go through that whole thing, but... What he says here is that, that there is a purpose in the law. It was added because of transgressions, sin. It came to show sin until the seed should come. Who is the seed, capital S, that would come? That is Jesus Christ. That actually fulfills the prophecy back in Genesis 3.15 about the seed. The seed that would come. The seed of the woman. And you also see here in Galatians 4, 4, him speaking about it. But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. That is Jesus Christ. The law came until the seed would come, Christ would come. And then when Christ came, we no longer need the law. And that's what he goes on to explain here in chapter 3. Look at verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given, which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Ah, there we go. So how do we get the promises of faith in Christ? It's given to those who believe. But before faith came, note this, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. And But after faith has come, we're no longer under 
a tutor. The tutor, the instructor, the guardian of the household, that's what the law did. And the law instructed us as to who we really were. We're sinners, and it's meant to bring us to Christ. We should look at the law and say, I have no hope of living up to the law. It's to bring us to Christ. So the law is not for a righteous person. The law, going back to 1 Timothy, if you will, is for the lawless. Look at verse 9. Knowing this, the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless. And as we looked earlier, that's, that's the purpose of the law. It's designed to show people their sinfulness. It's not for someone who's already recognized their sinfulness and then turned to Christ. That person, as we saw earlier, is no longer under the law. We don't need that. They should now walk in newness of the Spirit. It's the law that reveals to us our sin in the hopes of turning us from our sin to Christ. And so what Paul does here is actually pretty amazing. Paul gives us a list of, uh, really by way of example, of, of those for whom the law was made. And he's basing it off of the Ten Commandments. And this is a great evangelistic tool that I'm pretty sure Ray Comfort stole from Paul. I, I'm, I'm, pretty, I, I'm, just, I'm just saying, if you know Ray Comfort, the evangelist, is it the way of the maker? Is that what it is? Yeah, but he, way of the master. He, he, not all the time, but his primary approach in evangelism is to take people to the Ten Commandments. That's what Paul does right here. Um, Ray Comfort will go to people and say, oh, hey, you know, can I ask you some questions? And, and just people on the street and say, hey, do you think you're a good person? Oh, yeah, I think you're a good person. So uh, do you think uh, heaven or hell when you die? Oh, well, probably heaven, if, I, you know, if there's heaven. And so then he'll go, okay, well, according to God's standard of how you get to heaven, it's the Ten Commandments. You heard the Ten Commandments? Like, oh, yeah, I heard the Ten Commandments. Okay, were you ever told a lie? Well, yeah, of course I told a lie. Okay, so according to God's commandments, you've broken that law, you're a liar. Oh, okay. Well, you ever told, uh, you, ever, you ever stolen anything, even a small thing, stolen something? Well, I'll probably stole something. Okay, so you're a thief as well. So you're a thief and a liar. And then he'll go, okay, I, what, what about adultery? No, I never committed adultery. Oh, but Jesus came and said that if you look at a person with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. So how about that? Go, well, yeah, who hasn't? Okay, so you're an adultering, thieving liar <laughs> condemned before God. Now where do you think you go? And they go, oh, I guess hell. <laughs> you see what he's done? They didn't know they were sinning. And he goes, let me just show you the Ten Commandments. Now what do you think? Oh, I guess I'm a sinner. Okay, yeah, I guess you are. What should I do? Well, let me show you. <laughs> and that's his evangelistic approach. That's what Paul does here. Go ask Ray, see if you got it from this. I'm, I'm pretty sure. All right, but this is what he, do, what he does here. He describes the violators pretty graphically. He goes to the ex extreme descriptions of these, and he does it using the two tables of the Ten Commandments. You understand when I say the first table and the second table? So the first table, the first four commandments, okay, all have to do with our relationship with who? God. It's your vertical relationship. All four of those, right? No other gods before me, no carved images, don't take my name in vain, and honor the Sabbath. All four of those don't have to do with anybody else. They have to do with your relationship to God. Vertical relationship. That's called the first table of commands. The second table all have to do with our relationship to others, to people here on earth. That's what they deal with. So honor your father and mother, do not murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, and don't covet, all have to do with relationships with people, and that's called the second table. Well, this is what he does. He sort of goes through those two tables, and I just want you to see what he does here. It's pretty amazing. Look at verse 9. Okay, so we know that it's not for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate. It's for the lawless and insubordinate. It's the lawbreakers and the rebels that the law is for. It's for those who violate God's standard and rebel against it. 
Where do we just see that? Those who violate the standard and then rebel against it. Romans 7, that's where we just were. Paul says, that's what happens. I didn't know what covetousness was until God said, don't covet. And then I'm a violator. But now I want to covet because God said I can't. So now I'm a rebel. So I'm a lawbreaker and a rebel. Do you see that? These exactly what he talked about in Romans. It exposes our lawbreaking and it arouses rebellion in our hearts. It is also going on through verse 9 for the ungodly and for sinners. None of us are godly. Ray Comfort always goes to people and says, uh, you think you're a good person, but I've never heard him say, do you think you're godly? Because most people say, well, I'm not godly, but I'm a good person. It doesn't matter. Are you godly? Because this is for the ungodly and for sinners. And all of us were there. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Jesus told us in Luke 5, 32, that I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So both the law and Christ have come to sinners. It's for sinners. It's for the ungodly and for sinners. And also, he says here in verse 9, it's for the unholy and profane. It's for the wicked. It's for the irreligious. For those people who maybe Ray goes to once in a while and these ones don't end up in the final cut. Do you think you're a good person? No, I'm an evil person. I'm a wicked person. I'm going to hell and you're coming with me. I mean, those kind of people, you know, he's coming across. This is for the wicked and the profane, those who trample on things that are sacred and holy and love it and like it, those that who have no reverence for God. Those are the obvious, but you know what? I do think we see that today and it's taken for granted. Isn't the Lord's name taken in vain so much in movies and television today? And people have just, just no clue what they're doing. But you know what really bugs me is that I see it all the time coming from Christians. I do not know what that is about. What are you doing? (laughs) We don't take the Lord's name in vain because it doesn't show reverence to our God. That's why we don't do it. People worshiping other gods all over the place. Yeah, maybe they're not little stoned carved images, but they're gods of sex and money and success and ambition, education, power, you name it. And it means absolutely nothing to them. Not a big deal. And Paul describes all of these offenders as they really are. You think you're a good person? No. Well, let me tell you what the Bible says. You're lawless, rebellious, ungodly, profane, and you're a sinner. And that is where Ray could have gone. He's a little more gentle with that. He just lets them see, oh, look, you haven't, you know, you're a sinner. But, but here Paul is saying, it's worse than you think. So those descriptions all reference the first table of commands. It's how our relationship is with our heavenly father, the God that demands our worship, the God whose wrath is being poured out upon all the unrighteousness of men. The next descriptions are all having to do with the second table. And he gives us, again, some very graphic, extreme descriptions. And for a reason, I want you to see this. Look what he says at the end of verse 9. It's for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers. Now, if we're going through the Ten Commandments, what, what command is that breaking? If you've done the first four, we're on number five. The fifth commandment is to honor your father and mother. What is the ultimate extreme example of not honoring your father and mother? Killing them. So he says, I'm just going to take you to the extreme. Murders, 
of fathers and mothers. That's what he says. That's the ultimate. Now, let me explain that to you. The command to honor your father and mother is actually expanded in Exodus chapter 21. In Exodus 21, verse 15 and 17, it says this, and he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. And he who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Now, you read that. This is, this is a, a son or a daughter who strikes their parents or, or just curses them, says something you know, rude and, uh, to them. He says they're deserving of death. That, that seems extreme. But it actually gets worse than that. Even a son who was re just rebellious, who, who did not honor his father and mother, was deserving of death. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 18, it says, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and who, when they have chastised him, will not heed them, then verse 21, then all the men of his city shall stone him to death with stones, so that you should put away the evil from among you, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Uh, that is extreme, folks. A, a rebellious son, you're supposed to take that to the elders of the city and say, he just won't listen, even after we chastise him. And they say, well, we're going to have to stone him. Why? Because they need to put away the evil from among them. We have an entire country full of rebellious children who do not honor their father and mother. And I think the government is largely to blame because they have taken the parental role. They have taken control and they have forbidden the one and only thing that Scripture gives parents to turn a rebellious heart away from destruction, and that is chastising. That is the only thing Scripture gives you. It doesn't give you anything else. It doesn't say go sit in the corner. It doesn't say have a timeout. He says you must use this means because nothing else turns a rebellious heart away from destruction, but that's where they're headed. In Proverbs 23, verses 13 to 14, he says, Do not withhold correction from a child, for if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. You shall beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. Do you see what he's saying? It's so much more important that you, you bruise the body a bit in an in, in effort to redeem them from hell, which is where they're headed. Now, obviously, you don't want to bruise them. There's more to that. But the point is he's making is, listen, Listen, if you're worried about chastising your son, you should be a lot more worried about their soul. It's heading to hell. And if you withhold chastisement from your child, the Bible likens that to wishing their destruction. Proverbs 19, 18, chasten your son while there's hope and do not set your heart on his destruction. That's pretty severe. In Romans 1, we just read it back a while ago, and in 2 Timothy 3, both of those include disobedient to parents. In that, in that list of those sins that are deserving to death. Do you see that in Romans 1? Disobedient to, par disobedient to parents was listed along all those other wicked uh, things. But why does Paul here say that they are murderers of fathers and mothers? This is why. Because if you dishonor your parents in God's eyes, it's no worse than murdering them. You, you've committed murder in his eyes. It's just equal. We come up with our own standard of right and wrong, don't we? So those people that Ray talks to a lot of time says, well, I'm pretty good because I've never murdered anyone. That's where they jump to. I've never murdered. And that's why he says, well, Jesus says if you hate someone in your heart, you have committed murder. It's a heart thing. He's doing the same kind of thing here. They're murderers of fathers and mothers. They're the ultimate extreme end of those who would dishonor their parents. That's the fifth commandment. What's the next one? Notice what he says at the end of verse 9. 
It's for manslayers. That's an easy one, isn't it? Manslaughter, that is murder. So this describes those that violate the sixth commandment, which is the next one in line, which is do not murder. And then he goes on in verse 10, for fornicators, for sodomites. Fornicator, we've looked at this word, it's pornos, it's where we get our word pornography from, and it's, it, 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 it refers to one who indulges in any kind of unlawful sexual activity. That's what a, a fornicator is. And sodomites, that is homosexuality. That is what the word means. Now, which of the Ten Commandments would this violate? What is next in line? Well, the seventh is, do not commit adultery. And you would look at these and say, well, how does this apply to, to um, not committing adultery? Do you remember our talk on sex and money some months ago? Marriage between a man and a woman is the one and only provision by God for the enjoyment of sex. Nowhere else, in no other context. So not just those who are married and then have illicit sex with someone outside of their marriage, but for anybody who engages in that kind of relationship outside, that is the extreme end of committing adultery. Does that make sense? And that's what he's doing here. He's trying to cover the gambit, trying to cover all the things that people would try to uh, niggle out of. No, it's for all of these. They've all blown it in this commandment. God finds them uh, guilty. It's a violation of his, his commandment. Notice what he says after that. It's um, for kidnappers. Now, you might be thinking, kidnapper. Now, where is that in the Ten Commandments? Thou shall not kidnap. Um, would that be commandment eight, the next one? Do not steal? Because in this word uh, for, for kidnap, it actually refers to a man-stealer or a slave trader. Again, Paul's going to the extreme violation of stealing, stealing another human being. That's kidnapping. Do you see? So he's going again to the extreme to, to get people's attention. It's for shock. And so what he's saying here is when you steal a pencil, you are on par with someone who steals a person. God finds you equally guilty. Do you see again? We come up with our own sort of moral code here as humans, but God says, ah, that's still stealing, and you stand guilty. Notice what he says after that. It's for liars and for perjurers, and this is an obviously clear violation of the ninth commandment, thou shalt not lie. Interestingly, Paul does not include a direct reference to the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet, which we refer to back in Romans 7, but instead Paul makes an all-inclusive statement here. He says, if there's any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine. Now, we looked at the word sound last week. That word means healthy. Anything that's contrary to healthy teaching, healthy doctrine. All of those things, he says, are contrary to what is healthy and good and just. What's right? What's good for the world? Do you see? Our, the, our world is actually designed to be against what is actually for their good. What's healthy? What's, what's best for us? We're all so concerned about what's best for our world, but they're just concerned about the planet. They're not really concerned about the souls in the world. What's healthy for the world is they understand that. We stand condemned uh, under God's holy commandment, and he requires repentance and faith in Christ. And that's where he goes with this in verse 11. All of that is according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. So last point here, it's according to the gospel. There's no 
uh, disjunction here between the law and the gospel. They're built upon the same moral base here. They complement one another. Mankind has always been saved by grace, whether they lived under the law before Christ or under the gospel. But notice that the gospel must include sin. Paul did. He just went through very graphically a whole list of sins. The gospel must include sin. Any gospel which does not include the law and sin is not the true gospel. These things are exactly according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. That's what Paul says. He says the gospel is glorious, actually, because God's glory is revealed through it. It's his character. His attributes are clearly seen. And I'm clearly seen for who I am not, not for who I am. And for those who recognize their sin and trust in Christ for redemption, don't we look at the gospel and say, that is glorious? I do. It's the glorious gospel. Paul can call it that. And he says, this gospel was committed to my trust. And that's really wrapping up his whole point. The church has been committed, entrusted with the stewardship of the glorious gospel. And these teachers were coming in and teaching all kinds of gibberish, trying to infuse the law to make it sound biblical, but there was no gospel. How many churches do you walk in today and hear that? Just things that tickle the ear. I'm sure I've said things today that people won't find easy to swallow. Yet it's true. It's true of us, of who we really are. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. We've been entrusted with the gospel, and because we have, we speak the gospel, he says. But we do it not trying to please men. I'm not trying to please anybody here. I do it out of the fear of God. God has entrusted us with the gospel. We must... Um, make sure we preach the gospel. It's the glorious gospel of God. And even back then, men were trying to add to it and change it. Today, it just seems like the church doesn't want to offend anyone. And so judgment, sin, those words, they're just not, they're not mentioned. But listen, the gospel is the good news. That's what gospel means. And for it to be good news, there must be some bad news that you must understand first, namely our gross sinfulness for it to be good. I'm going to close with this quote from Gresham Mackin. He's a Princeton theologian, founder of Westminster Seminary. He said this, what good does it do, what, what good does it do me to tell me that the type of religion presented in the Bible is a very fine type of religion and that the thing for me to do is to just start practicing that type of religion now? I will tell you, my friend, it does not one tiniest little bit of good. What I need, first of all, is not exhortation, but a gospel. Not directions for saving myself, but knowledge of, God, of how God saved me. Have you any good news for me? You see, we, we all have the good news. We know the good news. The problem is, is that we know it doesn't sound good to so many people. And in the fear of men, a lot of times we just shy away from sharing the good news. But as a church, we're entrusted with the gospel, and we must protect it, and we must proclaim it. Here in the church in Ephesus, other teaching was beginning to um, fill the pulpit rather than the teaching of the gospel. And Paul says, Timothy, you've got to command these people not to teach any other doctrine, because what is the point? What are we here for, church? We're here to make people aware 
of where they stand before a holy God. We sang about his holiness today. He is in this amazing throne room in heaven. He sees all and he knows all. He knows your heart. He knows what you're thinking even right now. And when we just compare ourselves with the simple Ten Commandments, we fall drastically short. None of us can live up to those Ten Commandments perfectly. And he says, you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, and none of us are. What we then need is a perfect Savior. And a perfect Savior came in the person of Jesus Christ, who went up on a hill in Calvary one time, died on a cross. But he did that so that all the sins of humanity, all the sins of the past, and even all the sins of the future would be put on him, and a sacrifice, a penalty, the death that we all deserve was paid on that cross. And that's why no one's justified by works. God doesn't care about works at all. What he cares about is the one work that was done by his son, Jesus Christ. If you put faith and trust in Jesus Christ today, then all of your sins are forgiven and you are made clean and new in him. Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Today may be the day of salvation for some of you. I pray that it might be. For the believers in the room who might be tempted by quite a few movements going around in our world today to bring some of the law back in, bring some legalism back in, please don't get chained to works. Chain yourself to Christ. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word. We thank you that your word is truth. We thank you that you even speak hard things that we need to know. And Paul does. He, he doesn't pull any punches here. He says it as it is, that we, we were those people, murderers of fathers and, and mothers and, and fornicators and manslayers and liars and perjurers. And we stand guilty before you of all those things because none of us can live up to the perfect standard that you have, God. We thank you that we can, though, find forgiveness for all those things in the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for us. Lord, I pray that if anyone here today has not made a decision for you, has not chosen to place their faith and trust in you and see what life would be like, forgiven, redeemed, a child of God. Oh, Lord, what a life it is. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you. And Lord, we also thank you that the life that we live now, we live by faith in the Son of God, and it is not in our own strength, but through Christ in us. We praise you for that in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Would you stand? And we're gonna sing that song that declares that so faithfully, that it's not by your own strength, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Sing with us.